From the Heritage Foundation, this is Heritage Explains. The chant you're hearing in the background comes from a group of college students in response to the brutal attacks on Israeli civilians by the terrorist group Hamas. But the students aren't there to memorialize the murdered civilians. The protest is a pro-Palestine one, with most gathered claiming that Israel is entirely to blame for the death of those people. But even more surprising to most Americans is where this demonstration is taking place. Not in Palestine, not in the Middle East, but in the United States. In fact, on the campus of Harvard University. The day after the Hamas attacks, 34 Harvard student organizations signed a statement blaming Israel, not Hamas, for the violence. To make matters even stranger, the university's diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, those who are apparently tasked with making sure that the campus environment is safe for all students, did not seem to mount a serious attempt to support Jewish students in the face of such accusations. On college campuses across America, similar situations have been met with similar lack of concern from DEI bureaucrats. But someone who was not surprised by any of these developments was Dr. Jay Green, Senior Research Fellow in the Center for Education Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Ironically, he graduated from Harvard himself with a PhD in government and he is not sold that diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucrats are doing anybody any good. In fact, they're probably doing just the opposite. How did you get interested in this work with DEI? So I actually had been a professor and an administrator at a university for 16 years before joining Heritage and for actually a number of years before that as well. And I had seen a, a dramatic change on campus and in the academy more broadly, having to do with the growth of a bureaucracy that was intended to articulate and enforce an ideological orthodoxy on campus. And that was something new and I, th I thought a very negative development in academia and something I was very concerned about. And I was pleased when I joined Heritage, it was some of the first stuff I could address in the, in the research I was doing. For those who may not be familiar with DEI, what does DEI stand for? What is it? How is it developed? Sure. So DEI stands for diversity, equity, inclusion. And those sound like nice words. And at least two of the three are nice words. Um, diversity is a good thing and we like it. Inclusion is a nice thing and we like it. But equity is more problematic. We prefer the word equality. But, but in the name of these nice words, some very bad things are being done. In practice, DEI promotes an ideological orthodoxy and helps enforce it on campus, which is the idea of developing and enforcing an ideological orthodoxy is fundamentally inconsistent 
with the purpose of higher education. So that alone is problematic. But the specific content of DEI is even more problematic because what it does is promote a fundamentally un-American worldview, which is that people can be divided into two big categories, oppressor and oppressed. And the oppressors deserve to have their privilege taken away, and the oppressed deserve reparations or address for the harms that they believe that they have collectively or historically suffered. And this is contrary to traditional American approaches to political life, which think of people as equal in their political rights and deserving of equal treatment under the law. And this DEI worldview is a watered-down Marxist worldview. But instead of capitalist and workers, it's divided into oppressor and oppressed, where oppressor and oppressed are based on racial, ethnic, and sexual identities. Did it start in the academy or did it grow into other places? How did that begin? It started in the academy and it comes out again out of a Marxist school of, of research known as critical race theory. And it made its way into the bureaucracy in higher education so that what we're talking about here is not fields of study or professors or departments. What we're talking about is a bureaucracy staff at a university who are the DEI staff. So they're not doing research on DEI. They're not teaching about DEI. They are there as a sort of political commissariat to, to enforce their view on the campus. And it spread from there out into corporations. Corporations adopted it in part to fend off the possibility of discrimination lawsuits. They thought this would be protective for them. They also thought it might be good marketing for them. So some of them leaned into expanding DEI bureaucracies in the corporate world. And more recently, it's expanded into our K-12 schools as well, so that the DEI bureaucracy we see in higher ed is reproducing itself with similar goals and similar consequences. We're going to talk about DEI in higher ed and then how it's worked out in the corporate world and K-12 education. Before we do that, what are some of the things that these DEI bureaucrats are actually doing? Can you give us examples of what they're accomplishing day to day? Sure. It's actually a good question because there are lots of them and it's a little unclear what they do with all their time. So I think a lot of these jobs are not high work jobs. So in practice, I think a lot of these bureaucrats hold a lot of meetings and they make people sit down and listen to them and basically affirm their approach to the world. But the way in which they do their nasty stuff, the way they negatively influence campus is that they signal to everyone on campus, the faculty, the staff, the students, that if they transgress the, the orthodoxy, that they might get in trouble. They might be disciplined, they might get fired, something bad might happen to them. And they also signal to radical groups of students that they have a place to go to for assistance and to help get organized. In, in other words, it's the lynch mob organizer. And so this doesn't actually require a lot of day-to-day -day work. So I think day in, their daily lives look like meetings and barely showing up but their practice is to function like a political commissariat where they kind of sick mobs of radical students on faculty and other students who then just live in fear and try to keep their head down and not say anything wrong. So at Heritage, you've done a lot of work tracking data out of higher institutions surrounding DEI. Can you talk about some of that work and um, some of the data visualization that you've done? 
Sure. So the first, I mean, we, we did a, a trilogy of three reports, uh, diversity, university, equity, elementary, and inclusion delusion. So this was DEI in order. It was a thing of beauty. So in diversity university, we just counted how many DEI staff are there at major universities. We looked at the 65 universities that were then part of the Power Five athletic conferences. Those conferences don't quite exist in the same form as they do now. But two years ago, we looked at this and we found that the average university had 45 DEI staff, but some places have much, much more. The University of Michigan, something like 160. Many universities, the average university has more DEI staff than they have history professors. They have four times as many DEI staff as they have staff designed to help people with disabilities, which they're obligated to do by law. They're not obligated to have DEI staff. So we were able to measure how big this problem was, and it's fairly big and it's growing rapidly. In the second report, Equity Elementary, we then saw how this was spreading into our K-12 schools. And at that time, two years ago, we found that 39% of all school districts with at least 15,000 students had a diversity officer. So this idea was spreading out into the hinterland and even into fairly small school districts. We updated that report just this last month and found that it's now up to 48% of all school districts have a diversity officer. We also found in that report that districts that had a diversity officer suffered much more severe learning loss among their minority students during the pandemic than districts that did not have diversity officers. So they're educationally counterproductive and politically disastrous. And we saw some evidence of that in K-12 schools in that we saw that districts with diversity officers were also much more likely to have gender secret policies. These are policies where if students wanted to change their names, pronouns, bathroom usage, that the schools had a policy that they would not share that information with parents and would keep it a secret. Diversity officers are associated with those policies, but they're not associated with minority learning. In fact, they seem to harm minority learning. Why do you think that is? Because I think the worldview they promote provides rationalizations for failing to exert effort to improve outcomes. If you say that students can't learn because of systemic racism, then you take everyone off the hook for working hard to get students to learn. The students think they don't have to learn because systemic racism the teachers think they're not supposed to teach because what can they do? There's systemic racism. So rather than concentrating on the things that everyone can do to make things better, it provides a rationalization for not trying much at all. Recently, there has been a bit of a dust-up between folks here at the Heritage Foundation and George Mason University. Can you talk about that incident and kind of what we've learned from it? Sure. So we also updated our diversity university report to add in George Mason University and to focus on Virginia universities, because we noticed that the Virginia public universities had particularly large DEI bureaucracies, much larger than deep blue states like California or Oregon. They had smaller DEI bureaucracies than Virginia. And this is puzzling given that Virginia is a decidedly purple state. And so we thought it would be important to highlight how Virginia public universities had really outsized extremely large DEI bureaucracies. And George, the president of George Mason University took issue with our report and claimed that rather than the 69 DEI officers that we identified, he claimed they only had 17. So we provided a list 
of the titles and web links where you could find every one of the 69 DEI staff that we identified. And we asked him for his list of 17, and he has yet to produce that list. So he was both insisting that they didn't really have very much DEI, but that it was wonderful that they had it. Like the, the food is terrible in such small portions, but kind of in reverse. You know, We have such small DEI staff, but it's gr so great that we have it was essentially the position of President Washington of George Mason University. He reacted in a very intemperate way, calling us liars and so on. And it was surprising for the leader of an academic institution to behave in that way when perhaps the more responsible stance could have been to look into the matter and see how large the bureaucracy was and whether, in fact, it was providing benefits for students, producing harm. Also documented some very radical content on the George Mason University website, on their University Life website. They had websites that were promoting Black Lives Matter, urging students to join and donate to certain act, uh, advocacy organizations, sign petitions that supported specific pieces of legislation for defunding police. None of this seems appropriate for a public university to engage in political activity or steer their students towards certain political causes or legislation. It may even be illegal. And this is what you get when you have an outsized DEI bureaucracy, is that they start basically organizing the students politically for radical activities. Speaking of radicalism, we've seen over the last couple of weeks with the unfolding situation in Israel, what we've seen is an oddly pro-Hamas sentiment that seems to have quite a large presence on university campuses or at least students who will not denounce Hamas, which seems like a very strange phenomenon. Is there a connection here to DEI? There is. So first, in our third report in our DEI trilogy, Inclusion Delusion, we actually looked up the social media activity two years ago of the, of the DEI staff. Uh, and what we found is they had shockingly high levels of anti-Semitic comments on social media. They had a hyperbolic criticism of Israel. They paid inordinate attention to Israel. By contrast, we measured what they had to say with respect to China. They were actually relatively favorable towards China, but also barely paid attention to China relative to Israel. So they were obsessed with criticizing Israel, basically, and uh, using many anti-Semitic comments in that criticism. And so rather than promoting inclusion or promoting diversity, which would be good things. The DEI staff actually do the exact opposite. They promote anti-Semitism and, and unreasonable cr criticism of Israel. Not that one could have reasonable criticisms of any country, including the United States, but the nature of their criticism was clearly crossed the line and was anti-Semitic. Now, this flows from this worldview that DEI bureaucracies are promoting. So if you think the world is divided into oppressor and oppressed, it's then a matter of placing every group into either the oppressor category or the oppressed category. And it's an unfortunate inevitability when people start doing this, that they put Jews into the oppressor group. And they do that because they say, well, on average, they tend to be more successful. So they, how else could they be doing that unless they're oppressing others? Marxists were also uh, virulently anti-Semitic, and so are their successors in, in, in critical race theory and in DEI bureaucracies. And so they're certainly doing nothing to restrain the pro-Hamas demonstrations on campus. 
In other words, they're not performing the function that they're supposed that they claim they're performing of promoting an inclusive environment. If these were white supremacist protests, they certainly would be out there denouncing them. But it's worse than that. They're actually providing organizational support for these groups. Students obviously have free speech, and but they don't have an entitlement to university funds, platforms, or organizational support. And they're receiving those things because they form Students for Justice in Palestine groups, which is a virulently anti-Semitic group. They get recognized as official student groups. They have university resources to recruit other students. They get money from the university coffer. None of this should be allowed. And the DEI bureaucracy, if it does anything, should be preventing that. And the fact that they don't just proves how DEI bureaucracies are really radical political activist groups rather than promoters of harmony on campus. And while it's been shocking, I think, to many Americans who have not paid close attention, Mike Gonzalez and I just had a piece the other day where we pointed out that None of this is shocking at all to those of us who've been closely following what's been happening on campus over the last decade. This radicalism with a very heavy dose of anti-Semitism in it has been gaining steam and gaining control over the academy every year, and it's now just burst into the open for everyone to see. As you're looking down the road, has the needle moved on DEI at all? Are we seeing it speed up, slow down, push back? What is the forecast from where you are? So the tide might beginning to turn. There, there are some reasons for optimism here. So we've seen some states take actions to eliminate DEI from their public universities. Florida did this. Texas did this. A number of other state governors kind of signaled that they might, and universities are beginning to rein it in a little bit. We're also seeing in the corporate world much more rapid retreat. So they're beginning to see that it might actually be costing them money to have Bud Light have transgender marketing as part of their DEI effort, that that's actually proven to be bad for business. And I think similarly hitting them in the bottom line seems to be the thing that makes people retreat on this. And the same may turn out to be true with respect to higher education. So a number of very prominent donors and board members at Penn, at Harvard, have finally declared they're going to stop giving. They are declaring their universities as having a a fundamental anti-Semitism and racism problem with DEI and that they need to reform this or they're not going to open their wallets back up again. And if anything is going to get the universities to turn turn around on this, it's going to be that. It's going to be pressure from donors. The problem on the other side is that universities do a lot to cultivate emotional support from their alums. And as I wrote in a piece that's pending, universities aren't in the education business. They're in the misty-eyed nostalgia business. They create kind of an emotional attachment so that people give without paying very close attention to the nonsense that their universities are doing. Now that they can see the horrible nonsense that they're engaged in, people have been horrified and have stopped giving and threatened to rally other donors against them. And I think it's beginning to have effects. You could see the university administrators scramble, which again is, in, you know, the cravenness of the university administrators, the fact that they're actually not that deeply committed to radical ideology, but just do it out of ambitious convenience is intellectually disappointing, but is encouraging politically in that we can get them to flip if, if they think it's bad for their careers to, to embrace this anti-Semitic radicalism. 
So as just an everyday American who's maybe listening to our show, is there anything that we can do as Americans to counteract this movement? I think there are a number of things we could do. I mean, first, I think we should be going to our state policymakers and insist that they regain control over their public universities. Public universities are ultimately state agencies and are accountable to public authority for what they do. And in particular, we should insist that they abolish their DEI bureaucracies. There's no legitimate reason to have them. We should insist that they take steps to enforce civil rights legislation equally to apply to all groups, including Jews. And they could do that by adopting the IRA or International Holocaust Remembrance Association definition of anti-Semitism, which provides better protection for Jews. And we can also insist that we reduce public appropriation in general for higher education, because part of why universities engage in this much nonsense is that they're too flush with cash. If money were tighter, I know they beg and, compl and complain bitterly that they need more and more money all the time. But the truth is, You've never seen so much money in your life as you'll see at a university. Just check out the climbing wall in the lazy river. You know how much money there is sloshing around. And if they felt like money was tight, they might focus on the core responsibilities of teaching and research rather than political activism and radicalism. What we're seeing in the Middle East is what could come to us if we don't pay attention to radical elements gaining control of our institutions. And so this is a bigger issue over the long term than just a bunch of protests and naughty behavior by students. I mean, in the end, what we're talking about here is having control over American institutions that are necessary for promoting the values that, are, that allow our political system to function. And we shouldn't take for granted how fragile our political system can be if it has rot from within with a radical view that sees America as a force for evil and actively undermines it from within. And that's the threat we're facing. Right now, that threat is weak and small enough that we can reverse it. But at a certain point, it gets lost. And we could see giant protests in the streets of London or Paris, and it should make us think about how we don't want to be that far along. We want to be America still, and America is a legitimately, wonderfully diverse place with high tolerance for lots of different people, but a commitment to the underlying values that allow our political system to work. It's those values that really matter. Thank you to Jay Green for his contribution to this episode. You can find links to all three of the Heritage DEI reports that he mentioned, Diversity University, Equity Elementary, and Inclusion Delusion in the show notes. If you're new to the show and wondering more about the situation in Israel and how it connects to the anti-Semitic demonstrations we've seen on American college campuses, I highly suggest checking out last week's episode with Robert Greenway. It's a great one. And as always, thank you to you for listening to Heritage Explains. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, send them our way at heritageexplains at heritage.org. Class dismissed. We'll see you next week. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It's written and produced by Mark Ghani, Lauren Evans, and John Pop.